Hi, I'm Snigdha Sharma and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about the Supreme Court Collegium's new recommendations for the appointment of judges. We also discuss the unrest in Meghalaya after the killing of a former militant. And we go over the latest updates from Afghanistan. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court Collegium finally ended the 22-month-long impasse and recommended the appointment of nine judges to the top court. And in the process, it made history by including the names of three women judges in the list. And that is not all. One of these women could also become the first woman Chief Justice of India. So to understand the significance of these recommendations in detail, we spoke to Indian Express's Apurva Vishwanath. So Apurva, can you begin by telling us about the almost two-year-long deadlock? So uh, for the Supreme Court, the last time recommendations were made to the government for appointment as judges of the Supreme Court was in fact during the tenure of former Chief Justice Ranjan Gogoi. This was way back in 2019. And since then, there hasn't been a single recommendation made. In fact, former Chief Justice Bob Day, who retired in April, also retired without making a single appointment. It's an unpopular distinction that he earned for his tenure when he retired without making a single appointment. So all eyes were on Chief Justice Ramana as he took over the collegium just as to see how he would navigate this. Because this time, the impasse is not an executive versus a judiciary issue. This is something that's happening within the Supreme Court Collegium itself. The five top judges of the Supreme Court who formed the Collegium to recommend judges of the Supreme Court. So there was an issue here. We've learned that the impasse within the Collegium has primarily been over the appointment of Tripura High Court Chief Justice Akil Qureshi, who is actually from the Gujarat High Court. So former Judge Rohintan Nariman, who just retired last week, sources have told us that Rohintan Nariman had sort of stood firm that Akil Qureshi must be recommended for judgeship to the Supreme Court. And if that recommendation doesn't come through, then no consensus can emerge on any other date. And so this sort of gridlock really meant that no recommendations were made to the Supreme Court. And what we have is currently a deficit of about 10 judges in the Supreme Court. So as the working strength of the Supreme Court started falling, it became an alarming situation. And yesterday, the Supreme Court Collegium sort of has made a breakthrough and has shortlisted about nine names and they are going to send those names to the government. Right. Now, of course, apart from the fact that they finally made the breakthrough, uh, the other significant takeaway from these recommendations is the inclusion of three women judges in the list. Uh, if you can go on and tell us more about this. I think the first significant thing is nine names being recommended at once. This is something that hasn't happened before. And even amongst those nine names, three names are of women judges. So that is also an unprecedented event in the Supreme Court Collegium since its inception in in the early 90s. So the three female judges who have been shortlisted are Justice Bibi Nagaratna of the Karnataka High Court, Justice Hima Kohli, who is currently the Chief Justice of the Telangana High Court, but she's originally from the Delhi High Court. And the third name is Justice Bela Trivedi, a judge of the Gujarat High Court. So these three names have been shortlisted. And significantly, Justice Devi Nagaratna is slated to become the first female Chief Justice of India. Sometime in 2027, 
Justice Nagaratna will become the first female Chief Justice of India. Tell us more about her, Purva. So, Justice Nagaratna is a daughter of former Chief Justice of India, Justice Venkatramaya. She is from Bangalore. And what we've seen in the last few months of Justice Nagaratna is the COVID interventions that came from the Karnataka High Court. She sat on the bench along with the Chief Justice Abhay Shrinivas Oak, and they passed a slew of orders, essentially, in most cases, taking the government to task. The train fares that the Karnataka government ultimately decided to pay for, for the migrants to travel back to their home states, that was an intervention from the Karnataka High Court by a bench that was both Justice Oak and Justice Nagratna. So we've had female judges in the Supreme Court. We've had former judge Ruma Pal, who missed being a Chief Justice of India by a whisker. So this is the first time that there will be a female Chief Justice of India. So that's why Justice Nagratna's recommendation is so momentous. Justice B.V. Nagaratna has given some of the most remarkable judgments on women's issues, temple laws and the need to regulate electronic media. In one of her most significant judgments in a divorce case last year, she said something quite remarkable. She said, and I'm quoting, People always say women empowerment, but the society does not know how to treat an empowered woman. Parents don't teach their sons how to treat an empowered woman. That is a problem with men, I will say that. Unquote. Now, talking about women in the Supreme Court, representation is majorly skewed not just in the top court but in the Indian judiciary itself. The appointment of Supreme Court judges is made under Article 124 of the Constitution of India, which does not provide any reservation for any caste, class, or person, including women. But from time to time, the government of India and the Supreme Court itself have been insisting on giving weightage and consideration to deserving candidates among women. But despite this, the representation of women in higher judiciary in India can only be called abysmal. Here, Apurva tells us more about representation in the top court. Representation has something that the judiciary has been trying to grapple with again since its inception. The common criticism is that it is mostly an upper caste, male-dominated pool of judges that form the Supreme Court or even the High Court. And be it regional representation, be it representation of minorities or anyone from the Dalit community or even women, it has been a big issue when it comes to this system of judges appointing their colleagues. In fact, in the Supreme Court, we've only had eight female judges so far and nobody has been a Chief Justice of India. In fact, right now, we only have one female judge in the Supreme Court against, I think, 24, which is the current strength right now. Justice Indira Banerjee is the only woman judge in the Supreme Court right now. So three names being recommended this time. If all three of them are appointed, then for the first time, you will have four female judges in the Supreme Court. The last time we had more than one woman Supreme Court judge was when, for a very brief time, Justice Indu Malhotra, Indira Banerjee and Banumati, all three of them, were serving for a very short time of a few months. So apart from that, we've never had women, at least in such numbers. Four out of 34 is not a big fraction, but at least that many, it will be the first time if they all get appointed. Right. So Apurva, now if you can tell us more about the other judges whose uh, names have been recommended by the Collegium this time. So apart from the three uh, women judges, the other recommendations include three chief justices of high courts, Justice Abhay Oak, 
from the Karnataka High Court, like I mentioned earlier. Justice Vikram Nath, who is currently the Chief Justice of the Gujarat High Court, and Justice J.K. Maheshwari, who is currently the Chief Justice of the Sikkim High Court. Also, Justice C.T. Ravi Kumar, Judge of the Kerala High Court, Justice M.M. Sundaresh, who is a Judge of the Madras High Court, have also been shortlisted. The other significant recommendation is that of P.S. Narasimha, who has been a former additional Solicitor General of India. Narasimha's elevation is, of course, a direct elevation, which means he's not a judge, but he's an advocate practicing before the Supreme Court. And such direct elevations have been quite rare in the Supreme Court. In fact, Narasimha's would be perhaps the ninth such direct elevation happening. And he also could potentially serve as a Chief Justice of India. Okay. And... uh... Finally, what happens once these, uh, you know, recommendations are accepted? So far, the Supreme Court is yet to issue a formal announcement of sorts that these names have been sent to the government. But we've learned from our sources that these are the names that, that the Collegium has shortlisted and these will be sent to the government and the government can accept it and appoint them as judges. Or if there is an issue with any of these names, The government can, of course, send the files back to the Supreme Court for reconsideration. And if the Supreme Court reiterates these its recommendations, like if for the second time the Supreme Court says that these judges should be recommended, then the government is sort of bound to make these appointments as per the memorandum of procedure that governs judicial appointments. Now moving on to Meghalaya. On Sunday, as our country was celebrating its 75th Independence Day in the northeastern state of Meghalaya, mobile internet was banned in four districts and a curfew was imposed in the capital Shillong. Not long after, the Home Minister of the state, Lakman Rimbui, submitted his resignation. The reason behind this upheaval was the killing of a former militant, cherished to feel thank you two days earlier. Tension has been brewing in the state ever since, with Tankyu's family describing the killing as a cold-blooded murder and local residents accusing the police of conducting a fake encounter. So to understand why Tankyu's killing has created an outrage and what the political ramifications of this incident are for the Konrad Sangma-led government, we spoke to Indian Express's Northeast correspondent Tora Agarwala. So Tora, if you can begin by telling us what exactly happened on Sunday. So Sunday, things really spiraled out of control in Shillong and there were incidents of sporadic violence across the town. This is all rooted in the killing of this man called Chirishtafil Thank You. He's a former militant of this separatist organization called the HNLC. And on 13th of August, he was killed in a police operation at his home in Molai in Shillong. The police had gone to pick him up because as per the police, Thank You was uh, involved in a couple of blasts which happened in Meghalaya, one in July and one last week in Laimukra and Shillong. And so the police apparently had evidence that this man, even if he had surrendered two years back, he was apparently involved in these blasts. So the police went to pick him up and over there, when they had gone to his house in Mulai, the police version is that this man tried to escape and tried to attack him with a knife. And in self-defense, the police had to fire around. And in that whole human cry, the one of the bullets hit him and he died. And he was taken to the hospital, but he uh, died en route to the hospital. After the police operation, there was a lot of anger in uh, Shillong, especially in Molai, which is the area he is from. 
because the family and the locals in that area alleged that this was police excess and it was a in their words a cold blooded murder and the police stuck to their version and they said that it was unfortunate but they had to fire in self defense now obviously tora a section of the public is not buying into this theory right uh, which is what led to the public anger and also the violent incidents that followed uh, thank you's death so if you can give us more details about what happened uh, in meghalaya after the killing right so right after the operation made news on friday i mean different organizations the student unions they started issuing statements saying that they wanted a judicial probe into it or because they thought that there was more to it than what the police statement said there was like simmering tension since then because people were just like not buying this argument of the police and on sunday there was a funeral procession for him and he was going to be laid to rest on sunday which was 15th and for sunday many organizations and local pressure groups over there they called for a black flag they told people to sort of come out and show their support so when the funeral procession was happening hundreds in shillong joined the procession and there was a lot of public sympathy and also coupled with anger and of course the those people who were committed arson and stone pelting and the vehicle example i just mentioned obviously there were a lot of unruly elements also at play on that day so probably the most stark incident was when this group of men dressed in black and also masked they overpowered the police vehicle the police in the vehicle had to drop their arms and run to save themselves and they took the vehicle they drove it around the city and they were like shouting slogans brandishing their arms later they damaged the vehicle and set it on fire so these were the images we were seeing throughout sunday from shillong and obviously the government had to do something so they imposed the curfew which is currently lifted for a few hours right now today but it's going to be imposed again they also imposed the internet ban in four districts right and uh, tora what is the situation like uh, right now yeah so sunday the night culmin culminated in two petrol bombs being thrown at uh, chief minister conrad sangma's private residence but nothing happened i mean there was no damage after that there has been because there's a curfew there's a restriction of movement and there is also an internet ban on so it is tense but it has been calm no incidents of violence has been reported since then so it is kind of calm but the curfew hasn't been lifted so i mean they are just assessing the situation to before they take the next step and lift the curfew so clearly from what you're telling us tora cherish to feel thank you uh, a militant he was but he was also an important man in the public's eye can you tell us more about his background right so cherish to feel thank you he was 57 and he was the founding general secretary of the hnlc which is basically a separatist militant organization and they are looking for a sovereign khasi homeland independent of india and he was also co-founder of the HALC which is the first militant uh, tribal organization in the state which was founded in the 1980s so he's been around for years and he's also considered as one of the most credible militants and uh, for long he was operating out of bangladesh but in 2018 came over ground while the government said that he had surrendered he maintained that he had retired because of ill health so there is like a different perception as to him coming over ground and he is quite old and i mean what people say is that he's been ill for a while 
but he's kept mostly a low profile since then what the police have said is in the last 6 months apparently they have evidence that he's been active and that is why because they had zero tangible evidence that's why they moved ahead to arrest him and later you know this unfortunate incident happened where he died that's what the police is saying so considering he was a dreaded militant uh, what then explains the public anger against his killing in meghalaya and in shillong especially his death came as a shock to people because many of them considered that this was a clear case of uh, police excess and everyone thought that if he was involved that he should have gone to the due uh, process in the court of law but so people didn't like it that he was killed like that because they smell something fishy basically and also the fact that so many people joined his funeral i mean observers in meghalaya say that it's not necessarily because they believe in what the hnlc is demanding or they are sympathetic to the cause of the militants but it also is just that standing up for the cause of human rights and it could also be coupled with generally the fact that people have not been really happy with the way the conrad sangma government has been functioning in the last two years covid has taken a toll economy is not doing very well and there is also like a lot of charges of corruption and there are scams happening and also coal mining has gone on unabated during this government's rule so it's a lot of anger and resentment against the government and it seemed like the killing of this particular militant was like the last straw so it's a combination of factors which led to so much public outrage over this particular death right so just to help us understand the separatist movement in meghalaya tora can you explain to us this concept of dakar I mean it is what has sort of uh, you know fueled the insurgency in Meghalaya right yeah so militancy is mostly i mean it roots to this whole movement against outsiders in Meghalaya and outsiders the term for outsiders is dakar literally it means outsiders so the tribal groups which live in Meghalaya felt that they were being overpowered by people from outside whether it is from the bengali community or assamese community so they came from this need for protecting their whole tribal identity This is not just something which happens in Meghalaya. Most northeastern states have this perennial insider versus outsider conflict running. So in Meghalaya, specific, that's where the roots of militancy lies. And in the mid 1980s, the first tribal militant organization of the state was formed, and that was the HALC and all the tribal groups in the state, and which is the Khasis, the Jaintias, the Garos. But later, that group split. so one group represented the garos and the other group represented the khasis and this other group which was the hnlc is which chirishtafil thankyo was a part of while most of the militancy movement in meghalaya has died down and it's been largely peaceful in the last say decade or so and even the hnlc has not been very active but in the last say few months or maybe a year they have been like small intensity blast happening in meghalaya so which has put the police on alert observers say that because hnlc basically wants to talk to the government of india but they want to sort of do it on their terms but the government first wants the hnlc to sort of give up arms and then only they'll talk so probably this is the reason why they suddenly you know in the last few months they suddenly you know started getting active And uh, finally, Tora, the public outcry over the killing of Tankyu had some serious political consequences, which includes the resignation of the state's home minister. Right? Can you shed some more light on this? Right. So, what 
immediately put the government in a spot was that on the night where all the violence broke up on Sunday night, the Home Minister resigned from his post and said that independent judicial probe should take place in Tibet. And what's important to note is that the Home Minister is part of the UDP, which is an ally of the Chief Minister Sangma's NPP. So it's an alliance government. So the Home Minister comes from the ally. And so he resigned saying that this particular incident was exceeded the tenets of law. And the Chief Minister hasn't accepted the resignation yet. They're saying they're going to look into it. So yeah, till now, officially, he's still the Home Minister because the resignation letter hasn't been accepted yet. So a little bit of a political problem as well. But this also sheds a light on the fact that all may not be well with the alliance partners because it seems like the Home Minister sort of didn't know what was happening. I mean, that's what his letter suggests, that you can't say for sure. So yeah, that's one major fallout of what happened on Sunday. But apart from that, now it seems to be, I mean, it may be too early to say, but the government seems to be taking steps to fix things. So on Monday, the cabinet decided that they've instituted a few committees. So one is a peace committee, which is going to have cabinet ministers as well as leaders from civil society groups and other religious organizations and other community heads as well to sort of discuss and chart the way ahead. They've also constituted a judicial inquiry into the death. They've also, I think there's going to be a separate law and order committee as well. So they're trying to do different things to get things a little normal right now. And finally, coming to Afghanistan, at least three people were killed and a dozen wounded after shots were fired at the protest against the removal of the Afghan flag by the Taliban in the eastern city of Jalalabad. Amid the efforts by the Taliban to set up a government in Afghanistan, a Taliban commander and senior leader of the Haqqani Network militant group, Anas Haqqani, met former Afghan President Hamid Karzai for talks on Wednesday. According to Reuters, Karzai was accompanied by the old government's main peace envoy, Abdullah Abdullah, in the meeting. In Kabul, groups of Taliban fighters carrying long guns patrolled a well-to-do neighbourhood that is home to many embassies as well as mansions of the Afghan elite on Wednesday. According to the Associated Press, residents say that groups of armed men have been going door-to-door inquiring about Afghans who worked with the Americans or the deposed government. It is unclear if the gunmen are Taliban or criminals posing as the militants. Meanwhile, at the Kabul airport, the evacuation of diplomats and civilians on military flights gathered momentum on Wednesday. However, thousands of Afghans continue to race to the airport and border to flee the country. The United States said that the Taliban has agreed to allow safe passage from Afghanistan for civilians struggling to join a US-directed airlift after reports emerged of some civilians being turned away or pushed back or even beaten as they tried to reach the international airport. In other news, the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE, has said that it has accepted Afghan President Ashraf Ghani and his family for humanitarian considerations. Ghani had fled Afghanistan just as the Taliban had approached Kabul. With the Taliban now in control of Kabul, External Affairs Minister of India, S.J. Shankar, said today that New Delhi is very carefully following the developments in Afghanistan and India's focus is on ensuring the security and safe return of Indian nationals still in the war-torn country. 
You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Snigdha Sharma, and was edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar. You can follow us and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter at Express Podcasts or send us an email at podcasts at indianexpress.com. And if you like this show, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find us. You can also look for us in the audio section in the top right corner of our website, indianexpress.com. 